this morning. I will um, take you back to Genesis, which is where we've been studying in Sunday school. But I, I, when Carlton asked me to speak, um, I wanted to uh, talk to you about something that I've been wrestling with in my study of Genesis, and that is the gospel and uh, its relevance for today. You know, the church in America, I think, is redefining itself. I know we could all identify with that. You know, the church, uh, the modern church here in America anyway, of course, as Rod has pointed out, in different parts of the world, there are different issues, that's for sure. But in America, we're, we're real busy teaching us how to love ourselves, how to highly esteem others, and how to make our lives better. Um, and sometimes in the mix of that, we, the, the gospel gets lost. We know that. We see it like when people on TV deny the gospel or deny that Christ is the only way or uh, really focus on touchy-feely marketing schemes instead of the essence of God's Word. But what I want to know is, do we in Bible-believing churches, rather than just have a condescending attitude toward those blatant violations of, of the gospel, do we really see the slippage we have in the gospel? Do we really see the gospel in its clarity? Do we really see the gospel for what it is, a covenant from eternity to, to eternity? Um, certainly God has not called His bride to stand still, right? In A.D. 100... The church was beginning to move, just beginning to grow after Christ had resurrected, sent it back to the Father. And as I understand it, uh, historians estimate there were about 40 million people alive at A.D. 100 in the Roman Empire. And of those, only about 25,000 were Christians. I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but the, the rough order of magnitude is what's important here. So only a pitiful 25,000 A.D. 100. 200 years later, the population within the Roman Empire had grown 50% to about 60 million, from 40 million to about 60 million. In that same 200-year time frame, though, the little band of Christians, the struggling early church, had grown from 25,000 to 22 million. Not a growth of 50% with the population, but a growth of 8,800%. They didn't have church marketing programs. They didn't have uh, church growth conferences they could go to. They didn't have uh, training in how to market the church or how to have an impact on the culture. How can we be relevant to society today? They had a message. They had a message that we call the gospel. And that's all they had. They had the power of Jesus Christ in their lives. They had the power of the Spirit. They had the power of His Word. But all of that was brought to bear in that one central message that we call the Gospel, which literally means good news. And you know, I thought about even as I was thinking about what to speak on, that if I stood up here and said, today I want to talk to you about the gift of tongues in the church. Or I want to talk to you about the role of women in the church. Or I want to talk to you about what's the real meaning of the sons of God in Genesis 6, 4. We'd all perk up and say, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be fun. Uh, he may be wrong, but it'll be real interesting. <laughs> and uh, 
But if I stand up and already I've disclosed, I want to talk to you about the gospel. Don't you automatically begin to kind of tune me out? Because I've heard all that. I've heard, and I confess that when I hear that somebody wants to talk about the gospel, I kind of think, give me something new. Give me something exciting. Some new nugget of truth. Some new revelation I hadn't heard before. And I'm really convicted about that in studying Genesis because throughout Genesis, as is throughout the Word, the gospel is the message. The gospel is is the priority of the message. It's central to the core of everything we've been studying. And in Bible study, at 9 o'clock each Sunday here, we've been focused on that. We've been in the life of Abraham, and we've come to the high point of Abraham's life, the mountain peak of his growth in Christ, of his faith walk. And that's Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, which you can go ahead and turn to, Genesis chapter 22 is where Abraham is tested by God. In fact, in verse 1, we're told God is testing Abraham. And He's testing Abraham in the most severe test that any man ever endured on earth, and that is in the sacrifice of his only son, his beloved son, Isaac. We saw last week in our Bible study time the perspective of this from Abraham, what it meant for Abraham. And surely all of us in here can identify somewhat with the pain, the agony, the severe test it would have been to be called upon to offer your only beloved son that you'd waited for for 25 years to be fulfilled miraculously in, through the dead womb of your wife and the deadness of your own body at age 100 and your wife at age 90. Only now some 20 years later or so, to be called upon to give that son up in sacrifice. So, today I want us to look at that story from the perspective of God. What is the typology? What are the, what's the symbolism in this story? What's its meaning in symbol, in parallel, and in type? To see God's perspective. To see God is the God who provides. God is the God who provides the sacrifice that's necessary for Abraham and for Isaac. It's an old story. It's a story of sacrifice. It's a story of a lamb who's missing, a story of a grown lamb who's found, and a story of the lamb who was to come. In fact, I think it's real helpful for us to view this message or to view this passage from the standpoint of the question that Isaac innocently asked his father. Isaac, at about age 20, uh, Josephus estimates his age to be 25. Uh, Everybody thinks he's at least an old teenager. So the image you had in the flannel graphs in Bible school of a little bitty boy and his daddy putting him up on the altar are not true. This is a grown, strong young man who can resist against a 120-year-old father. And what was the question he asked? Where is the lamb? And that's what I want us to look at today is where is the lamb? So look at the first 14 verses of Genesis chapter 22 with me. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, 
Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I'll tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I with the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. As I said, this is probably the greatest story in all the scriptures, except for the story that it prefigures. And that is what? The story of God offering His Son in sacrifice. I mean, where else can you see the drama, the tension, the trial, the testing? I mean, if we really read this, knowing this is a real event that occurred with real people, in a real time, about 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years before Christ, then surely we can understand the tension that's here. As long as there are fathers who love their sons, as long as there are special sons, and we know the fear of losing that special son in death, especially in the death by your own hand, then this story will bring meaning to us. As long as there's sin in the world, as long as there is the the uh, hopelessness that we face when we look for where is, the, where is the propitiation, where is the satisfaction for God's wrath against my sin. As long as we understand, as we talked in Bible study this morning, the seriousness of sin, that it is what Christ came to pay the penalty for. It cost God His Son. As long as we understand the seriousness of sin, that without that sacrifice, we stand separated from God for eternity. One sin, not a life of sin, but one sin breaks the bond of fellowship and the hope of holy union with God for all time. As long as that principle exists, this story has great meaning. You know, and what I want to show, uh, what I hope you see this morning, is that just as if, we look back to Christ 2,000 years. This story looked forward to Christ almost 2,000 years also. And the gospel story has not changed. One thing Genesis ought to teach us is that God has been about saving people the same way since Adam. 
There's no, he doesn't have one plan of salvation for the Old Testament saints and another plan of salvation for the New Testament saints. One plan of salvation for Gentiles, one for the Jews. God has one covenant of grace, one plan of salvation, one focus, one message, one person. He's always been saying the same thing, that God would save His people from their sin. And it's the same message for all men, for all time, that through the same man, Jesus, by the same means, grace, through the same method, faith, for the same motive, glory, the glory of God. God had one message. And that's one thing that has made more sense in my life, my walk with God, than anything else is to see God has had one plan. And we get it confused and we want to think, well, God tried this and that didn't work. And then God tried this and that didn't work. And so God kept responding to man. Man has always been the responder. God is the sovereign, electing, divine power. He doesn't respond. He purposes and plans and He brings about His providence. Romans 15.4, Paul teaches us that whatsoever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So, if we don't appreciate this story, it's because we don't appreciate the depths of our need. It's because we don't appreciate the depths of our sin. It's because we don't appreciate the height and the glory of our Savior. Because in this story we see all these types, these types of um, symbols. You know, a type in, in Bible study is just a symbol or a parallel of a person, thing, or event that prefigures or foreshadows a person, thing, or event to come. So typically in the Old Testament, you have types that foreshadow antitypes. And now, I know you're thinking antitype, that means the opposite. No, that in, in this case, antitype just means that which comes later. So the antitype is that which the type foreshadows. So these are parallels. These are teachings of symbolism. And so typically types are in the Old Testament while their corresponding antitypes are found in the New Testament. So there's a bunch of them here that I want to just look at quickly and walk through fast because of time. But like in verse 2, you see Isaac is set apart by Abraham beforehand to be sacrificed. Just like the Passover lambs that started in Exodus, the beginning of the week they were set apart. They were set aside to be sacrificed. And then three to four days later, they were sacrificed. Likewise, God the Father set apart His Son for the mission that He came to the world to accomplish. He was the Passover lamb, as symbolized in Palm Sunday, right? When He was set apart at the beginning of Passover week as the ultimate Passover lamb. Also in verse 2, we see Isaac is to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. By the way, a burnt offering was an offering for sin, which even in Abraham's time, even though ceremonial law has not even been given yet, you see that the, um, the principle of offering is already well established for even from Adam's time through Noah. Sacrifice was taught. God had taught His people the meaning and principle of sacrifice. Burnt offering meant you slaughtered the animal, you drained its blood, and then you burned its body with fire as an ascent offering of praise to God and petition 
against our own sinfulness. So it was for the remission of sin. And here we see the principle emphasized that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. But beyond that, we also see now the new principle that's introduced in this story, and that is that that it's not just a sacrifice of an animal, but an equal sacrifice is necessary. For a human sin, a human sacrifice was necessary. The sin of blood and the sin of bulls and goats and doves would not satisfy God's wrath against the sin of humanity. I needed a sacrifice that was equal in value to me. So, not just any blood would do. It had to be equal, a human sin. And then in verse 5, Abraham and Isaac went on together. That's obviously indicative of the fact that this is a work of God the Father and God the Son together. This is not the work for men. Just like, you know, at the cross, Christ went forward to be crucified and the two men on either side of Him were left behind when He entered into His work. Well, likewise, Abraham and Isaac went on together alone to perform the sacrifice and left the two servants behind. Um, There's no man, no angel, no being could assist God the Father and God the Son in what had to be done. It was a God-sized task. Only God could pour out the wrath needed upon sin for justice, and only God could receive the penalty of that wrath to pay that price for sin. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood, laid it upon the back of Isaac his son, obviously indicative of what? Christ bearing his own burden, the wooden cross. It was his burden, the sacrifice. The sacrifice he had to bear the burden of the cross and had to bear it alone. Verse 6, we see Abraham carries the knife in the fire, the fire being indicative of divine judgment upon sin. As like from the flaming sword in the Garden of Eden all the way to the burning lake of fire in uh, the end time in Revelation. Fire has always been representative of God's divine judgment upon sin. Verse 7, Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb? And Abraham's answer uh, confirmed what Isaac probably had to be suspecting by this time if he didn't clearly already know, and that is that God himself would provide for himself the lamb for the sin offering. So this type, this symbol, has a double meaning. First of all, God has to provide the lamb. No one else can. Only God can do it. Secondly, God has to provide the lamb for himself. The lamb is necessary for God's justification, for God's, not God's justification, but for God's just sacrifice to appease appease his justice. That God might be, as Paul says, both the just and the justifier. How else could he do it except that God provide the sacrifice and God provide it for himself? And then note in verse 9, Isaac is a willing and bound sacrifice. Uh, As I said, he wasn't a little boy. He was a strong young man who, look at the faith, people focus on the faith of Abraham. Look at the faith of Isaac who willingly submitted, who yielded himself as a willing and bound sacrifice, which again prefigures uh, the antitype of Christ who came, who gave his life up willingly. No one took it from him. He was like the lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent. Verse 10, we see that Abraham had to strike Isaac himself. Of course, that was prefiguring what? God the Father had to do what? Strike Jesus. He struck his own son. 
he had to strike. He was smitten of God, as Isaiah says. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Verse 11, the angel Lord is pre-incarnate reference to Jesus Christ himself um, who stops Abraham knowing that he would alone be able to bring the sacrifice that was needed. And then after he stopped, Abraham releases Isaac and receives him back from the dead, so to speak. This is very interesting to me because here we see that Abraham knew the story of the resurrection. And you say, well, now wait a minute, Aaron. You're jumping to a lot. How does he know that? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus himself is speaking to the Jews. And in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So what's Jesus talking about there where he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and, he, and it was glad. Well, obviously, it's pointing back to something that was very glad tidings to Abraham. It was something that refreshed his soul. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men, even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. See, he had already yielded three days prior that Isaac was dead. You follow me? He, he, in his mind, Isaac was as good as dead. So he yielded Isaac up as dead, and he received him back as a type. A type of what? A type of Jesus who was to be resurrected. Think about it. Would you sacrifice your son? Would you kill your son just because of some hope-so theory you'd invented in your mind? Knowing that, all right, How do I reconcile these two things? All right, God, you promised me a son for all posterity, and through him you'd bless all the nations of the earth, and that through him the seed of promise would come. And now you're telling me to take that son and to kill him on the altar. How do I reconcile those two things? Well, I got an idea. Maybe you're going to raise him from the dead. So I hope that's right, but I'm going to go kill him. Do you see my point? You don't kill your son on some hope-so theory. God had taught the gospel to him. That's what, what it says in Galatians 3. When it says in Galatians 3, 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So what did Abraham believe? Did he believe God about Isaac? How does believing God about Isaac reckon you righteous to God? Follow me? He believed God about Jesus. And what did he believe God about Jesus? He may not have known His name. He knew He was the Messiah to come, the promised one, the one who would crush the head of the serpent that was promised even from the dawn of time. So he believed that he would, as Romans 10 says, what does it say? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So what did he believe about Jesus? That he would come, he would pay the price, and God would raise him from the dead. So, with confidence in that fact, he could offer his son as a sacrifice, knowing, as Hebrews says, God would raise him from the dead. I hope that connection is made because to me that is bedrock to understanding the passage. 
So that is the kind of gospel that Romans says is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That is the power of the gospel, resurrection power. Then in verse 13, we see the type of substitute, the uh, grown male lamb. In other words, a ram is called in the thicket, and that brings about the principle of substitutionary atonement, substitutionary sacrifice, where now the type of Christ moves from Isaac to the ram. He's the one true substitute who would take the place of all who would be saved. Verse 14, Abraham names the place Yahweh Yara, which in Latin is transliterated into Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And what a testimony that is, even to this day, as it says in the verse, that of the one true substitutionary sacrifice who would come. Only God could provide the sacrifice. Only God could provide what was necessary. And then we see uh, in verse 14 that in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. You know, we know from Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that this mount is the exact same mount upon which Solomon built the temple. At the time, it was just a bunch of hills that Abraham journeyed north from Beersheba up to sacrifice in an area called Moriah. But many years later, God would build a city there called Jerusalem. And on that mount, he would call forth Solomon to build a temple on Mount Moriah, the exact same spot where Abraham offered his son Isaac. And that's where sacrifices of countless millions and millions of animals would be given, all prefiguring the sacrifice of the Lamb to come. And then finally in in, uh, verse 2, jump back up. This is real important. And see the, the most important type, I think, and that is emphasized in the father-son relationship. Notice in verse 2 when the call comes to Abraham, how he emphasizes to go and to yield, to offer. And by the way, God doesn't command Abraham to kill Isaac. He commands him to offer him, knowing he never would kill him. So he commands him to offer the son, your son, your only son, Your son whom you love. The first use of love in the Bible, the first use of a word for love is here. And isn't it strange that the first use of love is not about the husband-wife relationship, it's not about the relationship between friends, but it's about the relationship between a father and his son. Why is that important? Because the message of the Bible is about the relationship between a father and his son. The love we enjoy between husband and wife, the love we enjoy between parents and children, the love we enjoy as friends, all that comes from the love spread abroad in Jesus Christ, from the love that exists in the Godhead between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So, can we take this in? I mean, to wrap up here, I just want us to pause and think. Can we take this in? Can we understand the power of the gospel is in the message of love, the message of God's love for His Son, number one, and the Son's love for the Father. But secondly, it's in the message of love that God has for us. Um, Again, if we don't see this, if we don't see the gospel as the great story that it is, it's because if you flip to the next slide, We have a great need. 
And man can only approach God through the shedding of blood. And man can only approach God through the shed blood of an acceptable substitute. And man can only approach God through the shed blood of an acceptable human substitute. So what's the solution? Only God can solve the problem. Jehovah Jireh. God must provide. We can't do it. Our need is too great. Our sin is too wicked. Our deadness is too dead. We must be regenerated. God has provided a great Savior. And the Savior God has provided is His only Son whom He loves. So, as you think about this story, and all of us surely admire the story and think, how could Abraham do this? And so, you know, so we see where the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, stop, don't kill him, don't touch him, because now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Well, what I want us to see this morning is how much more so should we say back to God? To look at it from God's perspective, not Abraham's, but from God's perspective, how much more should we cry out, now we know. Now we know, O Lord, that Thou hast loved us, that Thou hast not withheld Thy Son, Thy Son whom Thou hast loved from us. I mean, as a Christian, if that doesn't crank your tractor or fuel your jets or whatever you want to say, what, what else does it take? God has not withheld his son. God has not withheld his only son. And that word there means not just singular, but, but it means very unique and special as Isaac was. God has not withheld His only Son from us. See what great love He has for us that He has not withheld it. So, as we ponder the Gospel, think about where is the Lamb? As Isaac asked his father, where is the Lamb? And uh, I know I should stop, but i gotta, I got to just tell you these points. I won't elaborate on them. But I want you to think about where is the Lamb? Number one, He was in the eternal covenant in eternity past. Right? Revelation says that. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God created, God enacted the eternal covenant of grace in which He elected Christ as the Savior who would come and through whom He would save us. So where is the Lamb? He's in eternity, in the eternity past, in the eternal covenant. Where is the Lamb? He's in the promises of the Old Testament. In all of Old Testament history and prophecy, He's cradled in the womb of the Old Testament. All the types and symbols, all the prophecies and promises, all of them pointed to who? Jesus. For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, they are yes in Jesus. They're all yes. Everyone I'm pointed to Him. The law, the Psalms, the prophets, every promise spoke of the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? Uh, you know, Adam may have asked where the Lamb is. David may have asked where the Lamb is. Isaac certainly asked where the Lamb is. But one day, the last of the Old Testament prophets is on the bank of the Jordan, and he sees his half-cousin coming toward him, John one twenty nine, And John the Baptist says, what? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's the Lamb. So he, where is he? He's in the flesh. 
He's put on flesh. He's put on flesh and tabernacled among us. Where is the Lamb? On the cross of Calvary in substitutionary sacrifice and atonement and in victory of resurrection to follow. Uh, He didn't just come. He came to die. He is the perfect Lamb that all the sacrifices all the sacrificial system pointed to. Fifth, where is the Lamb? He's in the church, the heart of His bride. Uh, He's building a bride from all the peoples, from all tribes, tongues, and nations, even Brazil. He's building His church. Where is the Lamb? He no longer tabernacles in tents. He no longer lives and dwells in the temples of stone. He no longer even tabernacles in His own flesh. But now He dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where is the Lamb? He should be in the hearts of His people. He should be in us by the Spirit of Christ. And last, where is the Lamb? In eternity future. Enthroned. uh, In the last book, the Revelation of God, we see Him in Revelation 5 on the throne. And before the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. And later, when he takes the book, they all fall down. The 24 elders fell down before the lamb, singing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and did purchase for God with blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then louder, they were joined with myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angelic beings, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. I don't know what else I could say except He is the Lamb. Um, And I guess the application for us today is may those who don't know Him as the Lamb of God see Him and come to Him as the Lamb who paid their penalty And that they might come to Him as the Lamb in love rather than having to kneel before Him as the lion in wrath. Because every tongue will confess and every eye will behold Him as the Lamb of God. And may those of us who know Him as the Lamb of God see Him as that in our daily lives. I just pray that we like Abraham would see the power of this old gospel story, the same story that's been from day one, and see that God has provided what we could not do, what we could never do, and what we need to give up trying to do. I mean, maybe that's a good application point for us to take home today, is give up trying to save yourself. Rest in the power of salvation that God has provided in the Lamb, and live as if you have been redeemed. So our struggle is not to live to earn God's grace, but our struggle is to live as if we have been graced, as if we are in God's grace. So uh, 
Join me as we pray. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in a prayer.